Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. listeners welcome back to buried motives we're so glad you're listening again yes thank you for coming back and listening again especially when our podcast isn't necessarily perfect all of the time (laughs) sometimes we make mistakes we do and recently just in my very last episode on gary hilton i had a couple of little mistakes in there nothing too major but i believe i called the vehicle a Dodge Astrovan and it should have been a Chevrolet Astrovan. A Chevy? Yeah. Isn't Chevy Chevrolet? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, am I getting it wrong again? No. It was a Chevy. For me, I'm just like, yeah, that blue van. That's how I describe them. <laughs> and sometimes you can't drink under the influence. <laughs> you can drive while under the influence. Yeah, so when I was talking about Gary's arrest record and his criminal past, I said that he got arrested for Drinking under the influence, (laughs) which it was supposed to be driving under the influence. I'm sure y'all figured it out. I'm sure. And maybe even you didn't catch it because neither Melissa nor I could catch it when we went through it. Oh, well. (laughs) That's what happens when you're a two-woman show, I guess. (laughs) It's bound to happen. It is. So thank you all for being kind about my little mix-ups during that episode. Oh, and I'm sure it's happened before. This is just the first time we're noticing. (laughs) Probably. But then as I was thinking about, I was washing my dishes and I was thinking about how I had said drinking under the influence. And I'm like, would that actually be public intoxication? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. Give me that. I'm going with public intoxication. I think it works. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you go with that. (laughs) And that's what makes our listeners so amazing is they love us with our flaws and all. Yep. But speaking of our listeners, we did want to give a couple of you a shout out. Yes, some of you have been absolutely amazing leaving us reviews, and we want to make sure that you know we notice. For sure. So we want to give a quick shout out to Nita96, Brittany, and Crocheted Runner. Thank you so much for the awesome reviews you left for us. It is so amazing to hear your feedback. Yeah, it really warms our heart and helps inspire us to keep doing what we're doing. So thanks again. All right, today's episode, Christy. Okay. Well, last week, we got to learn about the case that perked Melissa's interest in true crime. As I was thinking about it, I think one of the reasons why so many people are intrigued by true crime is because it's hard to reasonably fathom the things that we talk about happening in real life. Oh, yeah. It's so hard to imagine that these dirtbags are just everyday people living amongst us. Yeah, and that their victims really have to go through these horrible ordeals. Mm Mm-hmm. So today's case is not the case that got me into true crime. We might cover that one day. But this case is definitely one of those that is hard to imagine it actually happening. Our killer was only 13 years old when he brutally murdered a four-year-old boy in 1993. No. I feel like this case will give us a lot to ponder and discuss. Can we blame his childhood for what he does? Or was he born a killer? Because of the nature of this crime, many believe that this teenage dirtbag might have become a serial killer if he hadn't been stopped in his tracks when he was. We will also be able to question how much time served is enough for taking another's life. Especially when you commit a crime like that so young. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Lots of different avenues for us to look at here. I'm excited. All right, so let's get into it. 
In a tiny village named Savona in Steuben County, New York, on January 22nd, 1980, a baby boy was born. And when I say Savona is a tiny village, I'm not kidding. Its population peaked in 1990 at 1,017 people. And its population in 2021 was only 684. That's like my hometown's population. Was it? That little? Wow. So everybody knew everybody. Mm -hmm. The boy who was born on that day was Eric M. Smith. He was born to a woman named Tammy Wilson. I was unable to find a name for Eric's biological father. Eric would later say that his father didn't want anything to do with him. He said he, quote, never really wanted me. So just your basic deadbeat dirtbag dad. Which never bodes well for the kids. It doesn't. (laughs) On a positive note, Tammy's parents, Edie and Red Wilson, stepped up and were very involved in Eric's life growing up. They were one of the only soft places for Eric to fall. Red said about Eric, quote, He would always come in and give us hugs and kisses. He loved being a comic, like clowning around. Edie added, quote, He definitely wanted to be paid attention to. So he's an attention seeker. He craves attention. Because as you're going to find out, he doesn't get a lot at home. Even from his grandparents? Well, he doesn't live with his grandparents. Oh, okay. Eric loved spending as much time as he could with his grandparents. There are lots of happy home videos of Eric spending time with Edie and Red. Unfortunately, this would not be enough to prevent the terrible tragedy that would eventually ensue. Allegedly, Tammy had two brothers who had drowned in an accident, but I'm unsure if she had any other siblings. And this could be why Edie and Red doted on Eric so much. Yeah. Eric's mom married a man named Ted Smith. He adopted Eric and his older sister. Reports suggested that they got married when Eric was still an infant, so Ted was the only father that Eric ever knew. Eric didn't find out until much later that he was adopted by Ted. And one account that I read said that he found out from another kid at school. Oh. Which would be quite a traumatic way to find that out. That is a traumatic way. Mm -hmm. Probably heard his parents talking about it and then teased Eric about it at school. So he grew up thinking that Ted was his dad. At the beginning. That's a huge shock to a psyche. For sure. I think it is important that your child knows that they're adopted. And that's just part of who they are. I think it definitely helps them with their identity. For sure. I believe that Ted and Tammy would go on to also have a daughter together when Eric was about a year old. I couldn't find a lot of information about his siblings, but from what I could tell, he had two sisters. So it was three kids within a short amount of time. I believe so. But don't quote me on it. (laughs) I don't want to have to tell you my next episode that I messed up on the amount of kids. (laughs) There just wasn't really a lot of information, but I'm pretty sure he already had a sister before Ted came along, and then they had a daughter together. Unfortunately, the addition of a father figure would not be a healthy improvement for Eric's life. Oh, no. There are reports of much abuse being inflicted upon Eric and his sisters at the hands of their father and stepfather. So another dirtbag example of a man for Eric. Ted became physically violent with Eric. Ted himself had been abused as a child and grew up with alcoholic parents. According to Ted, he had almost been molested by an uncle. But my spidey senses think that he likely was molested, but was too embarrassed to admit it later. That's sad. Often the cycle of abuse just continues because once you're in that environment, you don't learn those proper coping skills or the way to break the cycle. Sadly, that's true. Until one generation is able to break that cycle. Well, and often it takes multiple generations to break the cycle. It does. And it takes hard work. And what's really fascinating is that when we look at epigenetics, it actually takes seven generations to change your genetic code when it's been influenced by stress. Oh, I totally believe that. 
That's how they say, too, you can be carrying generational trauma. Mm -hmm. The child and adolescent psychiatrist who interviewed Eric and his parents during the trial, Dr. Herman, said that Ted, quote, probably hit Eric much more than he admits. He also said, quote, that discipline in the family was quite harsh and quite physical. A neighbor stated that she once saw Ted grab Eric off the ground by his arm and kick him in the behind. She said that she saw Ted do stuff like that to other people's kids as well. She said, quote, a lot of people around here are afraid of Ted. Tammy was no exception to the list of people who were afraid of her husband. A family friend said that Tammy was afraid of Ted, but afraid to be without Ted as well. She said all her life, she's had someone to take care of her. That's so sad. And that happens, I think, with a lot of victims. It's a rock and hard place situation for sure. Another neighbor later said that a lot of people around town thought that Ted should have been put on trial as well for his despicable actions. And I thought it's pretty bad when the whole village knows that you're a tyrant. Well, in a small village, that's just what happens, though. Yeah, because mm-hmm. everybody knows your business. Sadly, Ted's behavior became even worse. Ted later admitted to molesting his own daughter. He denied molesting Eric, but Eric's later behavior would suggest otherwise, even though Eric would deny it happening as well. And I assume he was probably molesting all three kids. Tammy and Ted would later testify that Eric wasn't disciplined any differently than his sisters, which consisted of occasional spankings with a belt or by hand, according to them. No bootings? Not according to them. So right there, you know that they're not telling the truth. They're not. They're not being forthright at all. Many believe that Ted was embarrassed by his stepson's appearance and lack of athletic ability, and therefore bore the brunt of Ted's abuse. What was wrong with his appearance? So Ted was a strapping man at six feet tall. Eric would grow up to be only five foot three. Eric had red hair and freckles. He wore big glasses, and his ears were slightly malformed. They sat lower on his head and protruded. He had a speech problem and was also very slight in stature. He only weighed about 80 pounds. Tammy did take anti-epileptic drugs, specifically Tridone, during her pregnancy, which could explain the low weight in ears. There are actually so many congenital diseases that have those low-set ears and the low weight and the small stature. That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. During the case, they did think it was the anti-seizure medication that she was on that caused that. Okay. Maybe new research would prove differently. The kids at school acted like little dirtbags themselves when they couldn't resist the urge to pick on Eric. As a result, Eric didn't have many friends to speak of. He felt more comfortable relating to adults outside of his home, likely because they were the only ones who were nice to him. How awful of a childhood is this guy having? I know. And the kids were relentless. And when are we ever going to learn that bullying does nobody any good? It doesn't. Because almost from sunup to sundown, this little boy is being picked on and abused. He's going to school. He's getting it there. He's coming home. He's getting it from his stepdad. And so like I said at the very beginning, his grandparents were literally his only reprieve. A safe haven for him. Mm -hmm. When Eric was toddler age, he would have explosive temper tantrums to the point of banging his head on the floor. Ted said that on one occasion, when Eric was a little older, he came to him with his hands clenched into fists and his whole body was shaking. Eric told his stepdad that he needed help with his anger. Ted told him that when he was angry as a kid, he just grabbed a bag in their barn and would start beating it until he was too tired to do anything else. Eric took this advice. Ted said, quote, I heard a door shut and I turned around and he was gone. 
As I got to the window, he was coming back in the door and he was calm. And I looked down and I noticed his knuckles and his hands were kind of skinned up and bloody. I asked him what happened and he said, I hit the tree a couple of times. So he seemed to be okay. Okay. So that was the advice he got from Ted. Just go beat something if you're feeling angry. An inanimate object if Mm -hmm. you're angry. Not just anything. Right. But when you're little... Do you make that connection? Yeah. Because that is a therapy that we often use to get rid of anger. Even exercise, lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Go run around the block. But it also shows me that at that young age, if he came in and his knuckles were all ripped up and bloody, he was really punching that tree. He had a lot of anger to deal with, it seems. To surpass the pain that it would have given him to injure himself. Yeah. Eric did not perform well academically and was held back on two different occasions. He was described as a bright underachiever, which I would take to mean that he could have done better in school if he had a better home life and had applied himself. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a big surprise to me. Mm-mm. Eric liked to watch a lot of TV. Beefus and Butthead and MTV were his favorites. His favorite singer was Garth Brooks. At a young age, Eric was drawn to what some would describe as dark books. He read a lot of Stephen King and Christopher Pike books, particularly ones that involved blood and violence, kids, and pets. Eric started smoking at age nine. That's young. It is. Unfortunately, he also started to hurt small animals around this time. Mm, That's not good. It's one thing to read about it and to enjoy those books. Totally different thing to actually enact them out and hurt animals and do other things. Yeah, I totally agree. And we know that that is a sign of serial killers. Mm -hmm. Eric began his animal cruelty by finding snakes and smashing them to death with rocks. Things would escalate when Eric set his sights on one of his neighbor's cats. Eric's 84-year-old neighbor, Archie LeBaron, had a Siamese cat named Sammy. One day, Eric grabbed the cat and strangled it to death. And this is such a red flag. Like, with his hands, just strangled this cat. Yeah, I was thinking you were going to tell me, like, he beat it with a stick or, like, tried to drown it or something like that. But to actually go straight to strangling it? Mm -hmm, Because that cat would have been clawing and trying to bite. Did he have any sensory deprivation that he didn't feel pain? No, not that I'm aware of at all. Because for a little kid to hold on to a cat that's going to scratch him all up? But that's where I'm saying when he was hitting that tree, he just kept doing it till he was bloody. It mm-hmm. didn't matter the pain that he was feeling. It was what he needed to get out. That's intense. Archie later said that Ted's reaction to finding out what Eric had done was almost as bad as Eric killing the cat. He said, quote, His father came out of the house and booted Eric so hard in the butt it lifted him off the ground. About Ted, Archie continued to say, quote, he didn't say one word to him. He just grabbed and kicked that little boy. He must have rose three feet off the ground. I held my breath and thought, oh my gosh, I thought he broke his spine. It made me sick. Oh. And this makes me question, if Ted treated Eric like this in public, what the heck was happening behind closed doors? It's true. And so this is going beyond just your regular, you're being a brat, I'm going to give you a boot in the seat of the pants. Yeah. Archie said that Eric was made to come to his door later and apologize for killing his cat and offer to do chores for him. About Eric, Archie said, quote, A child doesn't get himself into the frame of mind of killing a cat that way unless he's spent a lot of time thinking about it. Oh, yeah. And he started with a smaller thing with the snakes and then progressed. But you can see how in his little world, he would just need to have power over something, anything. Yeah, because right now in his own life, he has power over nothing. Mm-hmm. As Eric grew older, more people became concerned by his behavior. 
In school, a few months before he would commit murder, Eric wrote an essay that was extremely violent. In the essay, he chopped off the arms and heads of his fictional characters with a sword. And this was not usual in a fifth grade essay. Around the same time as the essay, a woman named Mrs. Heskell approached Tammy and suggested that she take Eric to see a counselor for his behavior. Mrs. Heskell's son was seeing a counselor, and she thought the same counselor might be able to help Eric. Eric had spent some time at her house to hang out with her son. It didn't seem like they were BFFs, but they were friends and did have sleepovers there sometimes. And did they get him some help? No, they don't. Speaking about Tammy's reaction to their conversation, Mrs. Heskell said, quote, She didn't seem to want to think about doing something like that. She continued to say, quote, I wish he'd started coming up here sooner. If he had, nothing would have happened. Up here, people talk to him. People listen to him. The feeling you got with Eric is he was looking for someone who cared about him. It's hard to know what Tammy was thinking, though. Maybe she brushed it off because she knew they couldn't afford it. Maybe. Because counseling isn't cheap. It's not. And they don't seem like a well-to-do family, are they? I would say they were probably middle class. Like, I didn't hear anything that they were struggling. Well, if it's anything like today, middle class can't afford the extra money that counseling is usually. That's true. Yeah, it's sadly becoming a thing just for the well-to-do. Mm -hmm. I'm always defensive of mums. And I'm thinking, you don't know that she wasn't brushing you off because they had already kind of thought about that avenue but didn't have the money for it. I think Tammy was probably just turning a blind eye. I think she knew the situation that Eric was in. She was aware of his behavior, killing snakes and the cat. Mm -hmm. She knew that her husband was beating him up. She knew he was being bullied at school. But like the one family friend said, she thinks Tammy was scared of Ted. And so she probably didn't want to rock the boat. Or she probably just felt trapped enough that she didn't think she could do anything about it anyway. Maybe. Only Tammy can say. Yeah. It is hard to judge another mom because we know it's hard being a mom. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you would want to do everything you can to help your son at whatever the cost was. And I'm not meaning financially the yeah. cost. I'm meaning if that means you're leaving oh, yeah. Ted. Because sometimes you just don't have the finances to be able to do that. Yeah. But she did have parents who adored Eric. And yeah. maybe he could have even stayed with them knowing that Eric was getting the brunt of Ted's abuse. Yeah. There's probably a lot of what ifs that she yeah. could have done differently. For sure. Eric's victim was the precious, young, four-year-old Derek Joseph Robbie. Four years old? Four. Oh, Christy. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you did a baby last week. <laughs> I know, and that was awful. I know. <laughs> we seem to go in waves where sometimes they're not so bad, and then we get into, like, some really bad cases, and then we come back out a little bit. <laughs> My next case is kind of a bad case, too, so just be pre-warned already. <laughs> they're all bad. They are all bad. Some are just harder to listen to, especially ones about children. Mm -hmm. Derek was an all-American little boy who loved his family and had a passion for baseball. Derek's dad coached t-ball and Derek loved to play. He would tell his mom that he was going to get a home run just for her, and he usually did. Aw, so sweet. Yeah, he's so cute. Derek was super friendly. He enjoyed sitting on his bike and waving to the cars that drove by. Derek's mother described him as her little firecracker. It was summer, and he was attending a recreational day camp less than a block from his home. On the morning of August 2nd, 1993, Derek's little brother, who was only 18 months old at the time, was being extra fussy, making it hard for them to get out the door and get Derek to his day camp on time. And any parent can relate to this type of frustration, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Derek was always trying to be helpful, and so he told his mom that he could walk to the camp on his own. Derek had never walked anywhere alone before. 
but he had walked to camp with his mom many times. Savona was a very small village, and the camp was just at the end of the block, which was a dead-end street. Derek wouldn't even have to cross the street to get there. It was literally just a little ways down the street from them. Plus, other kids would be walking in the same direction towards camp at the same time. Oh no. Derek's mother, Doreen Robbie, recalls that Derek said to her, quote, It's okay, Mom. I'll just go by myself. And she regrettably decided to let him go. How could she have ever guessed what would happen? She couldn't. And I put in here, please, no mom shaming in this situation. This was the 90s, and she did what a lot of moms would have done in her situation. Mm -hmm. And really, just down the street. She could probably still see the end of the street. Probably. He didn't have to cross. It's a dead-end street. There's not going to be traffic. Mm -hmm. And all the other little kids are walking at the same time. Doreen said, quote, He gave me a kiss, and I said, I love you. And he says, I love you, Mom, and went hopping off the sidewalk. It was the first time I've ever let him go anywhere alone, and it was the last time she'd see him alive. Oh, that is heartbreaking. I know. Melissa's tearing up, and I have to tell you, I teared up so many times while (laughs) writing these notes. I'm not a helicopter parent, but that is awful. It is. Because we can put ourselves in her shoes. A lot of us moms would have probably let him go in that Mm -hmm. kind of a situation. And it's just down the street. Yeah. We wouldn't see that so much now, but in the 90s, it was totally a common thing. Mm -hmm. And just how heartbreaking that it was the very first time that she did let him walk by himself. And this is why parents have so much fear of letting their kids do these things today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's because of stories like this. It's true. Derek never made it to the camp. He left his house at 9.15 a.m. that morning and would sadly be murdered just minutes later. What? In a cruel twist of fate... Eric had also been attending a day camp at the same facility. However, he had gotten into trouble twice that morning and was already sent home. Again, this was small town 90s, and so he was allowed to just hop on his bike and head home alone. Eric was fuming mad as he rode his bike away from the camp. That was until he set his sights on little Derek coming towards him. Oh no, and he takes out his anger by beating things. Mm -hmm. Eric stopped to talk to Derek. They were only three houses away from the entrance into the park where the camp was held. Eric told Derek that he knew a shortcut to the park through an open field. He convinced Derek to let him show him the way. Once Eric had lured Derek 73 meters, or about 80 yards away, into an area of trees, shrubs, and tall weeds, he decided to take the anger that he had been brewing inside of him for years out on poor Derek. No, that's not a just deciding. Like, that's not a, oh, I'm so angry, I just have to take it out right now. That's planning and conniving. To lead him off the path? That is evil. It is. And I totally agree with you. And that does come up later in the court. Okay, good. That's just not a rageful outburst. No, I don't think so either. That is what they try to claim, though, later. And I just find this so heartbreaking because Derek would have totally trusted Eric. It was another kid. Like, he even said, it's okay, mom, other kids will be out there. Hmm. This time I decided that I'm going to read the court summary of what happened to Derek. Just a warning that it is very detailed and not easy to hear. And just a note as well that they refer to Eric as defendant. It reads, At 9.12am on Monday, August 2nd, 1993, four-year-old Derek Robbie, carrying his lunch in a canvas bag, left his home to walk to a nearby park to participate in a recreation program. Several minutes later, on McCoy Street near the park, defendant, who was riding his bicycle, encountered Derek, whom he knew from the recreation program. According to the oral and written statements defendant gave to police one week later, defendant called out, 
hey kid, prompting Derek to turn around, at which point defendant, quote, knew I wanted to take him someplace and hurt him. Defendant asked Derek if he wanted to go to the recreation program by way of a shortcut, but Derek said he wasn't supposed to. Defendant repeatedly assured Derek, it's okay, I'm right here, then got off his bicycle and led Derek through a wooded vacant lot adjacent to the park. As the boys reached a secluded area behind an overgrown hedgerow, defendant put down his bicycle, let Derek go ahead of him, and then reached around and choked Derek's neck with his right arm. Derek dropped his lunch bag and kicked his feet and swung his fists in an attempt to get away. Defendant started to release Derek in order to readjust his grip and choked Derek with his hands. But because Derek began to gasp some air, defendant squeezed harder. After about 30 seconds, Derek no longer made any noise. So defendant figured he was dead and laid him on the ground. When Derek again began gasping for air, defendant dumped Derek's lunch on the ground, picked up a paper napkin, and stuffed it in Derek's mouth. Defendant then attempted to stuff a plastic sandwich bag in Derek's mouth, but pulled it out when Derek bit defendant's finger. Defendant picked up a small rock, kneeled over Derek, and struck him with it three times on the right side of the head, picked up a large rock, and with both hands threw it three times on Derek's head, then picked up another large rock and threw it twice onto Derek's chest and once onto his midsection. At that point, defendant took the drink from Derek's lunch and poured it on Derek's face. He then pulled down Derek's pants, took a stick, flipped over Derek's body, and quote, put the stick up his butt. What? Defendant flipped over the body again, dragged it several feet to a rock pile, and left the area on his bike. After about five minutes, defendant returned to the scene to check the body. As defendant subsequently related to police, he wanted to double-triple check to make sure that the victim was dead. Quote, I was worried if he wasn't there, he might say something. However, I figured if he's dead, and I believed he was, I won't have to worry about anything. Defendant then left the scene. What? Mm -hmm. Okay, now I can see why you think he's been sexually abused. That is totally why I think he has been. Yeah. And the amount of rage in that little boy. Yeah. And the whole spilling the juice on his face. Like, what was that about? Yeah, it was red Kool-Aid. Just trying to humiliate him? Like, I'm curious if an incident like that happened with bullies. Maybe. To him. Maybe. And some people thought he was trying to pour it into the wounds because he had hit him on the head with the rocks and that had caused wounds on his head. Or like you said, I never even thought of that. Like, maybe it was bullies that had done it to him. Just so random. Mm-hmm. Oh, that poor little boy. A few more details that I feel are worth mentioning is that after Eric emptied the lunch bag that Derek's mother had packed for him that morning... He found a banana and decided to smash it. So there was just a smashed banana laying there. Like you said, the part of the murder where Eric sodomizes Derek with the stick totally suggests to me that Eric had been sexually molested at some point. The question, if Eric was molested, was brought up during the trial on more than one occasion, but was ultimately denied, even though it was proven that his sister had been molested by Ted, Eric's stepfather. Did people think that this didn't happen to boys in the 1990s? It all just seems suspicious to me, even with Eric denying that it happened. I just can't even imagine a 13-year-old having that knowledge or that urge to stick something up somebody's butt. And if he's wanting to hurt, he's hurting in a way that he knows that hurts. Yeah. Just totally heartbreaking for little Derek. And he was half of Eric's body weight. He was only 40 pounds. That is awful. 
For some weird reason, Eric removed Derek's shoes and placed the right shoe by Derek's left hand and then placed the left shoe by his right hand. Investigators were never really sure why Eric did this. And he didn't explain it? Mm-mm. John Tooney, the district attorney who prosecuted Eric's case, said, quote, Eric continued to deal with Derek's body because he wanted to, because he chose to, and most frighteningly, because he enjoyed it. Oh. This entire ordeal only took between five and seven minutes. Soon after Derek had left his house that morning, storm clouds had started to roll in. Derek's mother, Doreen, said that shortly after Derek had left, she suddenly felt a wave of panic. She said she had an awful feeling, and then it began to pour rain. She knew something was wrong. She said, quote, I swear, that was the moment he died. I think he was letting us know. Derek's father, Dale Robbie, said, quote, Derek was very close to us. If there was any way he could have told us he was leaving, he would have tried. That's eerie. It just gives me goosebumps. It's a mother's intuition, right? Yeah. And I believe she totally did know because it happened around that same time frame that he was being murdered. She just got this overwhelming, awful, anxious feeling. When Doreen went to the camp to pick up her son, she was told he never showed up that day. Oh, she didn't go out then when it was raining. There's mixed. Okay. Some say that she went right away and then others say she waited a little bit and then went. Okay. Because she didn't know the awful feeling was because of Derek. No, but... That was in retrospect, right? It was just right after she just had this horrible feeling come over her and she didn't really know. Well, she probably brushed it off into being like first time angst over letting your son go out by himself. Right. A storm just rolled in. Yeah. The baby's being fussy. You're already wired Mm -hmm. because of all those things. But it wasn't like the whole day. I believe it was for sure by 11 o'clock. Okay. But I cannot imagine what she felt in that moment to show up and for them to say, no, he never showed up. Just the pure panic and horror. Oh, it would be awful. Yeah, absolutely. Every mother's nightmare. Have you ever lost one of your kids in the, like a superstore? Yes. At Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an awful, awful feeling. It is. Like you try to remain calm and you're like, but I can't see them. Where did they go? Like, what do I do? It's so big. Like, I can't imagine them telling her he didn't show up. Right. I would have been a puddle on the floor. Totally. And you're like, do I cause a scene? Like, what do I do? One of my kids used to hide inside the clothing racks. That's where mine always did too. Yeah. And so you're even looking up and down the aisles and you can't see. Mm -hmm. She quickly got sentenced to the cart after that. (laughs) (laughs) An investigation was immediately launched. And four hours later, Derek's lifeless body was found in the wooded area. Like we've seen in other cases, Eric joined in on the search for Derek. No. Knowing full well where his body was and what he had done to it. What a dirtbag. And this totally gave me Mary Bell vibes. Mm -hmm. She did that too. She helped look. News traveled fast, and the entire small village of Savona was frantically searching for a cold-blooded killer. Most villagers believed that the murdering monster had to be a man from outside of their town. You would never suspect a child. And definitely not one you knew. For sure not. Everyone knew everyone in their safe little village. No one was looking for a local, scrawny, teenage dirtbag. Nobody would think that it was somebody from your town. Right, not a town that small that you know everybody. And with the things that were done to Derek's body, you would not be suspecting another child having done that. Not with those types of injuries. The extensiveness of them? Yeah, and the brutality. Yeah. Like I saw the evidence photos of some of the rocks, and some of them were, like I wouldn't be able to get both my hands around the rock. They were large. 
Eric's own grandfather, Red, said, quote, When this terrible thing was done, everybody, including myself, thought it was an adult. And how could anybody do such a terrible thing? Police desperately searched for clues. Because the injuries occurred simultaneously, Derek's cause of death was classified as a combination of asphyxiation and blunt force trauma. Five days after his murder, Derek Robbie was buried in the Savona Cemetery, wearing his beloved baseball uniform. His family placed a ball and baseball bat inside the coffin with him. Over 150 people attended his funeral inside a church that was meant to only hold 100. Derek was only two months away from turning five when his life was taken. That is so sad. Eric went about his days, no doubt enthralled with all the commotion that his actions had created. Well, because he would have loved the attention. Mm -hmm. Four days after the murder, he joyfully walked into the police station to ask if he could help in any way with Derek's crime. Um, no, Eric, you've done enough. But again, this is common behavior for a killer. And I will note that his parents were also with him, and I believe his grandfather. It was hard to tell exactly who was, but I think they were becoming suspicious. And so they had said to Eric, let's go into the police and just see if we can help. That's mm. how I took the situation. That they were thinking that something was up. That he might have known something. Oh, okay. They weren't suspecting that he had done it, but that maybe he had known something. That he had seen something? Yes. And I'll kind of explain. There's a thing that happens with the neighbor that kind of makes them feel that way. But he was happy to go in. Let's go in and ask the police if we can help. Oh, that's so conniving for a 13-year-old. Yeah. John Hibsch was the investigator to speak with Eric. In retrospect, he said about Eric, quote, He totally enjoyed it. Totally enjoyed it. Didn't want it to end. He's looking right at me. He's very upbeat. Very happy. He likes the fact that he's being talked to. John Hibsch had no idea that he was face-to-face -face with Derek's killer. But he decided to question Eric a little bit and see if he saw anything. Eric denied seeing anything at first. But then, like on a whim, he changes his story and begins talking. He would have got a real kick out of telling his story and knowing that they didn't suspect him. Probably. But he doesn't confess at first. No, but just to tell the story and watch people's reactions to what he did. Yeah. John Hibsch said about Eric, quote, He says, right across the street from the open field. And that's when I saw Derek. And when he said that, he about knocked me off the chair. He's putting him right on top of the crime scene. I mean, you've just got to walk across an open field and you're at the scene where the murder was. So the officer was not expecting Eric to say, yeah, I saw him right over here. Mm -hmm. Because he's realizing that is really close to where the crime scene is. So Eric has now just placed himself at the crime scene. And was the crime scene public knowledge? I'm assuming that it would have been. Okay. Especially in a little town like that. And I just thought, can you imagine what was going through the officer's mind while speaking with this light as a feather, innocent looking kid? Because he totally looks innocent. He does not look like what you would expect a bully to look like. No, with the red face and freckles, he looks like a baby face. Yeah. He's got these beady little eyes, these great big like aviator style glasses, the big stick out ears. Like he looks like a kid that's going to be picked on as opposed to one that's going to do the picking. Mm -hmm. Sadly. Why you always got to pick on red hair and freckles? Come on, you guys. They're off the devil. <laughs> I got a spell on you. <laughs> John Hipsch asked Eric if he recalled what Derek was wearing that morning when he saw him. Eric was able to describe his outfit in detail to the officer. He even mentioned the lunch kit that Derek was carrying with him. He said it was kind of cool. In the crime scene photos, it looks like a cloth, troll-themed lunch bag. There's pictures of it in the evidence log. Are alarm bells not going off for this officer right now? 
Totally is. Okay. Yeah, it is good police work in this one. At this point in the conversation, John Hipsch said about Eric, quote, he's bouncing around again. He's happy and he's telling us something. However, this demeanor would quickly change when he was asked where he had last seen Derek. Eric put his head down and his voice started to crack. He then brought his fists up and the officer could see that his fists were vibrating a little. Eric then yells out, you think I killed him, don't you? Everyone in the room kind of looked at each other like, what the heck is happening? Are his parents in this room too while he's being questioned? They are, yep. In fact, the officer says, let's take a break. And Eric's dad goes and gets him some Kool-Aid. Red Kool-Aid? Yes. When Eric sees the red Kool-Aid, he takes it and smashes it to the ground. The officers don't see this as guilt at first. They know that red Kool-Aid was poured on Derek after his death. However, they think that Eric must have witnessed something unspeakable, and that is why he's having such a visceral reaction. Officer John Hipsch said, quote, I'm thinking this kid has seen something that's very traumatic, and there's a block in there, and I can't get around it. And that's what you would think, because would. it's a child. Yes. Ugh. Totally what you would think. You're thinking this poor kid is so traumatized, mm-hmm. because that would be a trigger seeing the red Kool-Aid. Yep. Eric's grandfather, Red, shared this sentiment. He said he knew that Eric was hiding something. He said, quote, In no way did we feel he had done it, so we felt that he knew something. Maybe someone had threatened him. That's why he wouldn't tell. And that would, as a parent and grandparent, that would be going through your mind. And you would go into protective mode. Mm -hmm. The next day, police asked Eric to show them on his bike where he said he saw Derek. Police described his demeanor as calm. They said he seemed to enjoy it and was even having a good time. Police videotaped Eric as he rode his bike around and showed them where he was when he saw Derek. Police were skeptical that Eric could have seen the details that he recalled from the distance he was showing police. This also raised concerns with Eric's family. Even they're believing, "Mm, something's not right here. It's a child's story, right? Yeah. And they don't always, they're not the best storytellers. No. Especially when it comes to detail-orientated facts. But by 13, you would think they would get some of it right. Is he a regular 13-year-old, though? No, he's not. Yeah. But I don't think my mind would jump to, oh, he murdered this boy. No, I think I would still be going on the lines of he's seen something and just can't get it out. Yeah. Or, you know, when you just have that feeling like something's wrong, something's off, and you just can't quite put your finger on it. And you Mm -hmm. don't want to allow yourself to think the unthinkable. Yeah. Nobody thinks their kid could be the murderer. No. After the murder, Eric spent most nights at the Heskel home that friend that had suggested to Tammy that Eric needed counseling before the murder occurred. Mrs. Heskel later said that Eric asked her questions about what would happen if police found out that a kid had killed Eric and what they could find out with DNA testing. He also got really upset when she offered Eric bananas on his ice cream sundae. He yelled out about how he didn't like bananas. And so I believe it was this stuff that had happened at the neighbor's house that made the parents kind of question. He might know something because he's asking these questions and they wouldn't have known yet the correlation that the banana had to the crime scene. No. But he reacted like that with the Kool-Aid. And so I think when she asked, do you want bananas on your Sunday? He probably went back to that moment where he smashed the banana at the crime scene. Yeah. And then had a overreaction to it. Memories are so funny, hey? Yeah. How they can create such a visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. One week after the murder, on August 8th, Eric's family finally sat him down and pleaded with him to tell them what he knew about Derek Robbie's death. Nothing could have prepared them for what he told them. He's just going to come out and tell them? He does. Grandpa Red said, quote, It's still hard to believe. 
Something must have happened to him because that wasn't my grandson. I was there when my grandson confessed. It was, it was terrible. Tammy, Eric's mother said, quote, at one point he turned to me and he said he did it. I lost control. I asked him why and why he did it. And he was just saying, I don't know. I don't know. And he cried. Eric continued to tell his mom, quote, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry. I killed that little boy. Thankfully, the Smith family did the right thing and informed the police of what their son had done. And my brain can barely comprehend what either of those mothers involved in this case were going through. No. So he was remorseful when he told them that he did it. Yes. Okay. He doesn't show a lot of remorse immediately after. But in the moment of telling his family, I think it was just finally getting that off his chest. He broke down crying, saying he's sorry. Or was it that he was caught? Maybe. Could be. The next big task would be to figure out why Eric did what he did, question if he would do it again given the chance, and then decide what to do with this 13-year-old murderer. Some people believe that Eric was a bad seed, while others thought he was a victim himself. Was it nature or nurture? It's both. It's It's always always both. both. I'm thinking a lot of this is more nurture, though. But he did have good influences, too, that he could have chosen to follow after. I just feel like, and I've said this before, and this isn't excusing his actions, but if he was born into a loving home, had never been abused, was not bullied at school, would he have murdered Derek? Probably not. He would have come up with different coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I believe so. He probably still would have been rageful. Yeah, could have been. It's hard to say because this is what happened. This is his story. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying that America was stunned when they found out that a tiny teenager was responsible for a vicious murder. This case quickly made headlines around the globe. The video of him being arrested is so shocking because he just looks so tiny. He's all handcuffed, being let out by police. It's just hard to believe. Eric was held at a youth detention center near Rochester, about an hour and a half drive from Savona, until the courts could figure out what to do with him. Eric had to undergo extensive medical testing. Specialists were called by both the prosecution and the defense to examine him. They looked at his brain function and hormone levels. Neither results would provide any answers. A defense psychologist diagnosed Eric with intermittent explosive disorder. This is considered a mental disorder and would explain how Eric could become violent in an instant without warning. The prosecution argued that this diagnosis was extremely rare in young adolescents. The defense chose not to use the abuse that Eric sustained throughout his life as a strong defense strategy. What? They thought it would be too hard to prove. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, um, what? Like, that is so much a part of this case. Yeah. They believe that intermittent rage disorder better explained an episode of uncontrollable rage and violence. Yeah, I'm not so sure. No, I don't either. But that's what they decided to hang their hat on. Okay. Dr. Barry Nurcomb, the director of child and adolescent psychiatry at Vanderbilt University, researched this disorder and believes that it is connected to sexual and or psychological abuse. If this is true, his abuse definitely should have been brought up, more significantly during the trial. This doctor also believed that Tammy's use of anti-epilepsy medication could have made Eric more vulnerable to the trauma, also making it more difficult for him to resolve it. That I get. Other experts think that the medication wouldn't have attributed to his rage disorder, but would have caused some of his physical traits that ultimately led to him being bullied at school. Or and if his stepfather was embarrassed of his looks, I guess it would have contributed to his abuse at home as well. And I just felt like I would not have wanted to be a jury member on this case. 
This would have been a really hard one. No, I don't want to make the decision on this one. No, we know that he did what he did, but to try and decide what for sure is he guilty of and what should happen to him is not something I would want to have to make a decision about. I lean a certain way, but it would still be a hard one to do. Mm -hmm. Dr. Newcrome said in reference to Eric, quote, clearly you can't have him wandering loose. He's got to be put away. But to try a 14-year-old boy with a mental age of 9 or 10 for murder is appalling. That law, allowing juvenile killers to be tried as adults, came out of adolescent street violence. It has nothing to do with a case like this. And I questioned, would he have made that same statement had it been his four-year-old son who was murdered? It's true. But that's why you do an impartial jury and judge. It's true. Right? So that you remove the emotion as much as you can from it. When did they come up with that testing that his maturity age was less than his actual age well he had undergone extensive testing and it was during that time that they had come up with that and he's calling him a 14 year old boy right now because it's a whole year later by time this Mm -hmm. is going to trial but then was it emotionally he was at a 9 10 year old level or was it intellectually he said a mental age of 9 or 10 so So maybe a combination Yeah. yeah basically functioning about that age There's a whole lot to unpack from that statement. There really is. And that's why I had such a hard time what to include and what to not because there was just so much. And he also, we have to remember, was held back two grades. So he's hanging out with kids who are a couple of years younger, which would have stunted his maturity. Could have. As opposed to if you're with kids that are older, it would increase your maturity. Mm -hmm. The decision was made to try Eric Smith as an adult. What? On second degree murder charges. Wow. Maybe because of how heinous the murder was because of the brutality yeah he pled not guilty his legal team would try to convince the jury that he was not criminally responsible because of his rage disorder i'm not buying that one though eric's trial took place a year after the murder in august of 1994 the prosecution so like you're saying argued that eric knew exactly what he was doing eric luring the small boy into the wooded area proved that he knew what he was about to do was wrong or he would have done it just in the open. That's right. They said that Eric was in control of his actions and knew that what he was doing would hurt or even kill Derek. Which I kind of agree with on that one. Especially since he went through multiple attempts. Yes. And he went back to check. Yep. To make sure. He said double, triple check. Yeah. John Tooney, the district attorney for the prosecution, said, quote, It's hard to comprehend somebody doing what Eric Smith did. He chose to end Derek Robbie's life. And he chose to do it in a way that was more than just killing. He could have simply killed Derek, but he chose not to simply kill Derek. No, he was absolutely brutal. Totally brutal. The last moments of that little boy's life were so horrific. Oh, yeah. And that was all his choice. Because mm-hmm. he could have just continued to strangle him. Yeah, but he strangled. He hit him with the rocks. He tried to shove stuff in his mouth. He poured red Kool-Aid over his mouth. And then shoved a stick up his butt. Yeah. Eric sat during the trial looking emotionless. Even when they read out his verdict. I wonder if he was like in a dissociated state. I don't know. So mind boggling. I just don't know how you don't have any kind of emotion. Like that's your future. That was the life of a child. Mm -hmm. How do you not have any emotion over it? I don't know. Unless you dissociate from it. Could be. But honestly, every single court picture that I found of him was just a straight face. Just sitting there straight faced. Which is interesting because he's a 13, 14 year old boy. They don't sit for the eight hours that you sit in a courtroom while you're listening to testimony and trial and everything like that. To remain stoic and straight-faced during an eight-hour trial, that's unusual, like super unusual. Most Mm -hmm. children that we've seen that have faced that kind of trial, 
they're like doodling on paper, they're fidgeting, they're doing other things. Even if they're not paying attention and not showing any emotion to the case, they're not stoic and straight faced. Yeah, as far as I could tell, he was pretty straight faced. I didn't find any video of the actual trial, just of like them arresting him, like from the news, that type Mm -hmm. of stuff. But it was reported that he just sat there with a blank look on his face. I just remember from watching all the trial footage from Joshua Young, like he fidgeted so much. He colored. He did like so many things. Yeah. Not Eric. Not that I could find anyways. The only thing I could find was that he wasn't doing that. Yeah. Which is super unusual. It is. Which makes me believe, okay, something is going on here with this kid. Mm -hmm. The jury deliberated for hours and finally reached a decision very late at night. Eric Smith was found guilty of second degree murder for the death of Derek Robbie. The judge sentenced Eric to the maximum sentence he could, nine years to life in prison. Until he turned 21, Eric was sent to a juvenile detention facility. When he became a legal adult, he would then be transferred to an adult prison. Eric would be eligible for parole every two years after serving his initial nine years. That's a pretty standard sentence. Yeah, it was the maximum that he could give him at that age and at that time for that charge. Eric's parents were devastated. And in the moment... Derek's parents were relieved. Sadly, they had no idea the ordeal of attending parole after parole would put them through in the future. That is the most cruel punishment that I think we can ever give our victims' families. I 100% agree, and we're going to go into that a little bit here. Eric spent his first three years locked up in a juvenile facility and then was transferred to an open prison for young adults. In 2001, when Eric was 21 years old, he was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Dannemora, New York. He would go on to transfer to other prisons as well throughout the years. Soon after switching to an adult prison, Eric would be up for his first parole. The hearing was in June of 2002. Derek's family sent a letter to the parole board with a video compilation of Derek's short life. It was said that Eric exhibited little remorse for what he had done and admitted getting pleasure from his actions. Eric was asked if killing Derek gave him a good feeling. He replied, quote, at the moment it did yes. When asked why he did it, he said, quote, because instead of me being hurt, I was hurting someone else. Which goes back to, I wonder if it was bullies that threw red Kool-Aid in his face and if he was sexually abused. I think so. Even getting him in that headlock, that's kind of what kids would do. Yep. John Tooney said, quote, What I do believe is that Eric was tired of being the victim in his mind, and he wanted to see what it felt like to be the victimizer. This doesn't justify what he did, but I do believe that this is why he did it. Derek was just in the wrong place at the wrong time when Eric decided to turn the tables. Okay, so my question is, what has he done to actually change those actions? Like, how is he not going to want to be the bully again? Right. And we are going to talk about it. Okay. But at this point, he didn't seem very remorseful on his first parole. So he gets denied. Yeah. Thankfully, he was denied parole at that time. He would be given the opportunity to reapply for parole every two years moving forward after his first denial, an opportunity that he took full advantage of. Oh, no, that poor family. Mm -hmm. Derek's family at first didn't really want the news of their son's murder, especially the details, to be in the media headlines. However, their viewpoint changed once Eric was able to start applying for parole. Sickened by the idea that their child's killer could get released, they now wanted to make sure the whole story of Derek's brutal murder was told. And that's why I read it from the summary, because his family wanted all the details out. And so I shared most of the details that I could. Derek's mother, Doreen, said, People need to know what this kid did. 
And I hope that this is how most families feel when we do cover their cases. We feel like their stories deserve to be told and people need to be aware of what these dirtbags did. Mm-hmm. Doreen continued to say, quote, It upsets me that we have to beg for them to keep this killer behind bars. Because that is what it would feel like every two years. They were are feeling like if we don't show up and ask them to keep him in there, he is more likely to get out. Mm-hmm. So they have to be involved. District Attorney John Tooney said, quote, In a lot of ways, it's like having the trial all over again. The uncertainty of the outcome. And that really would be torture for the family, having to relive the crime and not knowing if their child's killer would be set free or not. It would totally feel like another trial. I thought that was a good way of him to describe it. Eric was eligible for parole two years later in 2004. He was again denied. This same year, Eric read a statement for the show 48 Hours. In this statement, he apologized to Derek's family for killing him. I'll just read segments of this statement. He said, quote, Hi, my name is Eric Smith. You first met me 11 years ago. I know my actions have caused a terrible loss in the Robbie family, and for that I am truly sorry. And I questioned, was this sincere at the time, or was it because he had been denied parole, and he was using his apology as a tactic to increase his chances of getting out of prison? Which is more likely. At that point in time, maybe. It just seemed like he had 11 years to apologize before that. Right. That's rather convenient timing for him. Now that he was having the opportunity to apply for parole, he's like, hmm, maybe I better make a statement and say that I'm sorry. Yeah, that's convenient timing. Mm-hmm. Eric would continue to have parole hearing after parole hearing and give more statements and interviews. There are too many to go through the details of each. I honestly could do an entire episode just on his parole hearings. However, there are a few more things I would like to go through regarding his parole attempts and statements. Again, speaking about his own childhood, Eric said, quote, So after quite a few years of verbal abuse and having been told that I'm nothing, I shut down my feelings. So I wouldn't feel the emotional pain, which made me vulnerable and weak, but the damage was done. I began to believe that I was nothing and a nobody and my outlook on life was dark. I felt that when I went to school, I was going to hell because that's what it was for me. The child that's bullied, that would be. Yeah, and I can feel really sorry for that part of Eric. Mm -hmm. He did not have an easy life. He did not deserve what had happened to him. This next statement made by Eric shares some insight on how he could murder a four-year-old boy in cold blood. He said, quote, However minor or major each abuse situation, it all adds up until it gets to the point where the individual cannot take any more. After a while, they may cope in a horrific way or take their emotional anger or rage out on someone who had nothing to bring on such violence, like Derek. Not because they're evil or satanic little kids. It's because they want the abuse to stop, and it's the only way they know how to. Unfortunately, that's true. It is. And I don't know if that's how they can explain it as a intermittent explosive rage because he had just got kicked out of camp and he was fuming and then found a victim. Eric continued to say, quote, I've tried to think as much as possible what Derek will never experience. His 16th birthday, Christmas, anytime, owning his own house, graduating, going to college, getting married, his first child. If I can go back in time, I would switch places with Derek and endure all the pain I've caused him. If it meant that he would go on living, I'd switch places, but I can't. And you hear lots of killers say stuff like that, and I just question, we don't know if that's sincere or not. You hope it's sincere, but there's no way to really know. I can't imagine ever living with that guilt. No, me either. 
especially because if he was functioning at nine or 10 at that time, and now as he's growing into adulthood, I think the gravity what you have done would eventually start to set in because he's not a psychopath. No, and hopefully he's received some treatment for the abuse that he's received. And it sounds like he's getting more and more insightful with each of his statements. I think so. I would agree. District Attorney John Tooney said many things about Eric. It sounded like he may have attended all of Eric's parole hearings. We know it's hard for families of victims, but he has said it's also hard for those who worked on the victims' cases. Well, they fought so hard to get a conviction, and now just to see it every two years? Yeah. Come up for review? That would be hard. And working on a four-year-old murder charge would be a hard one. Mm -hmm. I'll read just a few more of his quotes about Eric. He said, quote, I don't doubt that somewhere along the line, a light bulb has gone on, and all of a sudden, Eric has a better understanding of the enormity of what he did. Does that mean he's now safe to be back among us? Of course not. That's one of these things that has frightened me most in this situation, because I don't doubt for a second, never have doubted, that had he not been caught, Eric Smith would have killed again, and that's terrifying. My fear of Eric Smith is not diminished. I would agree with that. I would too. I feel like had he not been caught, we would have been discussing him later as a serial killer. Yeah, just from the amount of pleasure he took from it. Yeah. And the attention seeking after and... And the brutality of it. But this is also where it gets tricky. Do I believe Eric is sorry? Possibly. Do I think he could kill again if he was released? Maybe. Probably. But I do agree with John Tooney that Eric would have killed again in his youth if he hadn't been stopped. So he did need to be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So are you thinking that he doesn't need to be now? No, I'm thinking that he does. Okay. But it's still hard because when you do something like this at 13, do you spend every last day of your life behind bars? Well, no, but what kind of reform have you went through? Where is the guarantee? Exactly. So recently, on October 5th, 2001, Eric attended his 11th parole hearing. I thought, what a nightmare for all of those involved. 11 times they had to go to parole. This time, Eric was granted parole. What are the stipulations on his parole? Well, he has already been released this year. On February 1st, 2022, Eric Smith walked out of Woodburn Correctional Facility a free man. He served a total of 28 years for the tragic murder of Derek Robbie. And that's where I ask, was that long enough? Should he be out? It's a life sentence here in Canada. It is. It's more than a life sentence here in Canada. Yeah. A life sentence is 25 years. He did serve 28. Should he be allowed the opportunity to be back in society? What are the stipulations of his parole? He stays on parole for the rest of his life. Does he have to have wellness checks? He did go through extensive counseling and anger management and all that kind of stuff while in prison. He did participate in all of that. And does he have to continue? I didn't find any stipulations on that. That's where I feel parole always falls short. Is because, yeah, sure, they did all of this work, but they also didn't have all the stresses of being out of jail as well. Right. And so they need that continued support. If you're going to say that you're going to reform somebody, they need the continued support out in the general public. And there might be, to be honest, I'm just not sure. Hopefully there is. Hopefully. Derek's parents were interviewed after Eric was released from prison. Doreen said, quote, I understand why after so many years they decided to give him a chance. And that's fine. You know, for him and his family, you know, he's been released, but in a way, so have we. No more parole. I can get on with our lives. Now the true healing can begin. I would rather laugh than cry any day of the week. If you let it, it's going to eat you alive. 
And all I can say is what an amazing woman and what an amazing family the Robbies are. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. As for Eric, only time will tell. It is said that he did undergo this extensive counseling work while being incarcerated. He finished school and got certified in a couple of trades. Eric was already engaged to someone at the time of his release. That is always so fascinating to me how that happens. I know. I cannot wrap my brain around it at all. He is engaged to a woman who initially reached out to him because she was studying to be a lawyer and wanted to interview him for her research on juvenile justice systems. Interesting. And I guess just one thing led to the other and now they're engaged. Well, I can see definitely how you would feel sympathy towards him if he's telling the story of his childhood. And we're not doubting that those things happened. They did. Eric wanted to be released into the care of his mother until his fiance was able to move closer. However, he was not allowed to return to her home because she still lived in Savona and authorities did not allow him to live close to Derek's family, who stayed living in that village. Although they had changed houses, I guess, because of the painful memories to stay in the same house where they had lived when Derek was murdered, but they did want to stay where he was remembered. So last update I have, the family still lives there. Eric said he wants to hold down a job, get married, and pursue the American dream. He has also said that he would love to be able to counsel with kids who have been bullied. He believes that he would be an asset because he is uniquely qualified to counsel bullied children and would love to be allowed to contribute to research involving why children kill. He said, quote, You may think I'm a threat to the well-being of society, and I can understand why you would feel that way. The fact is that I'm not. I'd be an asset to society. Derek's attorney added, quote, I think society might be safer if he were allowed out to do that kind of research, because nothing will change what happened to Derek, but maybe something can prevent what might happen to someone else's child. I can see their point on that, but at the same time, like, what agency is going to ever let him work with children? Yeah, I don't think he should be allowed to counsel bullied children, but maybe be allowed on research. Yeah, research makes sense. Yeah. After all these years, the people of the small village of Savona still grieve over what happened to Derek. The year after Derek's murder, bulldozers cleared the area of the crime scene and a new baseball field was constructed in Derek's honor. A statue of Derek in his baseball uniform was sculpted by his uncle. It was funded by people all over the United States. It stands to this day on a hill overlooking the ball field. The plaque on the statue reads, quote, Dedicated to be a gentle reminder of what childhood is meant to be, Derek J. Robbie. That's sweet. I know. I cried while I was writing that part. <laughs> the statue's really adorable, too. And that his uncle did it is really cool. Yep. The Robbie family are choosing to focus on their own family instead of Eric Smith. Their younger son is now around 30 years old and has had to grow up in the shadow of his older brother. That would be so hard. Very hard. His mom did talk about, I didn't put in these quotes, but about how hard it was to not be so overprotective now Mm. of her younger son. And he spoke about how it was hard to grow up with this happening as your older brother. Mm -hmm. During an interview, Doreen said, quote, you have to find joy in life. You have to enjoy each other because life is too short and just live. Derek's father, Dale, said, quote, August 2nd, the day we lost him, we always try and go do something fun. White ice cream with sprinkles. That's what Derek called vanilla. So we try to, and then Doreen added, quote, wherever we are, we have to go find ice cream. As he was crying, Dale said, quote, even though it's sad, it's happy. And I think this is a beautiful way to keep his memory alive. That would be so sweet. Mm-hmm. 
And that is the story of a severely damaged boy who viciously took out his suffering and pain on an innocent little boy who has served almost three decades behind bars and is now a free man. And only time will tell if he will live a productive life from here on in or if the system messed up big time and he will continue to choose the dirtbaggery lifestyle by killing again the 13-year-old murderer, Eric Smith. Wow, that was a really long description of that dirtbag. I know. This is the longest description I've had on a dirtbag. But there's just so much to it. Mm -hmm. There's so many different avenues to that case. Because we're going right from childhood, from Eric, his abuse, to the murder, the aftermath of all of that, to now Eric's an adult. He's out of prison. He served 28 years. There's just so much to unpack. And because he was just let out earlier this year, we can't even update you yet on what he's doing with his life. I'm assuming he's going to live a pretty low profile and hopefully stays out of trouble. But we have seen when people get let out of prison and then they go on and murder again. And we think, why did you ever let them out? Mm -hmm. Only time will tell, I guess. Hopefully the proof is in the pudding and he'll do what he says he's going to do and live an upstanding life. But hopefully you'll never have to listen to us talk to you about Eric ever again. But we do hope that you check us out again next week when I'll bring you another case. Until then. See ya. Bye. nothing in front of me i'm feeling naked oh, a bunch of weirdos <laughs> we're special sometimes yes. <laughs> dinglings <laughs> is that how we're gonna start we didn't even do hey listeners yet i know like i don't know how that happened. i even wrote it wrong in my notes <laughs> i was just like do, 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 do. my eyeball is twitching <laughs> i'm just like i look awesome all the time you do Humana, humana. <laughs> Red hair means they're the, of the devil. <laughs> Didn't you know I have my ginger locks from bathing in the blood of my enemies? Oh. No, not with the infliction of such. Not with those types of inner. Not with those types of inner. <sighs> injuries. Injuries. Not in injuries. Uh, okay, you gotta suck back the tear. <laughs> <laughs> you from crying <laughs> melissa just got tim's iced hot chalk no what is it called what are those called ice ch no creamer screamer i don't know what they're called <laughs> chocolate chills oh Christy. chocolate chills melissa just blew chocolate chill up her nose <laughs> i thought you were gonna let me have a drink before you last said your last sentence then you were staring me down <laughs> i paused uh, we just needed a laugh, I think, from all of this. <laughs> I just needed a drink. <laughs> and you were like, hey, sorry. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then I tried to hold the swallow to let you <laughs> finish your sentence. But it went up Because you laughed. <laughs> you tried to laugh out when you're <laughs> drinking in. <laughs> If anybody doubts what Christy and Maya's coping mechanism is. It's food. That's what I was just going to say. You were like, I need some chocolate. <laughs> Even if I have to drink it. Distraction and yep. laughter. Distraction noodle.
Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.